sermon text this morning comes from Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 7. It says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. I'm tempted to make a joke right at the get-go because... um, Our stage is set up. Um, We did not set it up, uh, but we're actually talking about running today. So pace is a really great word. Somebody already asked me about that. Why does it say pace on the wall? Well, it's supposed to be peace, but we'll take pace. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get hop into the sermon. I'll I'll try. Uh, I might get love and joy, though, so we'll see. Uh, When I was young, I actually considered myself a runner. Um, I was pretty quick uh, at short sprints. Uh, But when I got to high school, I discovered that running was not for me. Uh, When I got to high school, I had to run regularly, and I found out that I really don't like it. To be on the golf team, shockingly, to be on the golf team, I had to run four to six miles a week. Um, I know that's not much to some of you. You're distance runners, and you can do that in just a matter of minutes. I am not, Uh, and so it was a really big deal. I was the pudgy kid uh, who ran only when the coach could see me. But as soon as I got behind the bleachers where he couldn't see me anymore, I just stopped to walk and always had to you know, do the, the rib cage grab because I was always cramping. People tell you, run through the cramp, you'll get through it. It's not true. That's a lie. So I really don't enjoy running. That's the point. Um, the Apostle Paul, though, different story. Uh, Paul either really liked to run or he liked to talk about it or he may have liked to watch competitive sports. I don't know. But he talks about running or racing a lot in his letters, probably seven or more times he mentions that. And he does so here in our text. He compares the Christian life to competitive running, running to win a prize. And in this text, he's going to show us four things that are critical to running well. So you may not have expected to come to church and uh, receive a lesson in distance running, in spiritual marathoning, but that's what we're going to get. Uh, Paul's going to lay out for us again four things, so uh, let me tell you what they are. To run the Christian race well, here's what we need. We need to, number one, be careful of what we take in. Number two, we need to expect the hurdle. Number three, we need to watch out for the ditches. And lastly, number four, we need to fight all the way to the finish line. I'll explain those more as we go along, but before that, we're going to just break apart our text so that and then we can say, why is he telling us that? So starting in verse 7, Paul says, you are running well. Okay, so the introduction of the running language. You're running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That word hinder uh, could also be translated as trip. So you were running, and who tripped you? In the ancient world, athletes didn't run around circular tracks like we do today. 
uh, they would uh, run in a straight line to a point and then turn around and run straight back. And at the point where they, they got to, the, the, the kind of goal line before they turned around, at that point where the turning happened, there was a lot of opportunity for tripping. So I want that to paint an image in your mind. Uh, we've told you before that when the New Testament calls people to repent, the word means to turn, to turn around. So if you think of it like a race, you were running one way, you were called to repent, to turn around and start running the other way. And that's what the Galatians had done, but somebody has tripped them. So they were following Jesus, they were doing a good job, and they got tripped up. Paul then asks, who did this? Um, that may be rhetorical, or there may, be a, a, may have been a ringleader amongst the Judaizers, we don't know. Um, but either way... He says, who hindered you, and specifically, who hindered you from obeying the truth? So here we see that running well and obedience to the truth are connected, which may seem a little bit strange because we've spent weeks talking about how we are set free from the law, and now Paul is talking about being obedient. So uh, we'll get to that later. We'll talk about why obedience uh, and being free, running well, are not uh, antithetical. They actually go together. He goes on in verse 8 saying, This persuasion is not from him who called you. So God called the Galatians to repent, to turn, to start running toward him. And now Paul is saying, you're being tripped up, and that's not from the Lord. Uh, so God uh, fired the starter pistol, as it were, to, to wake them up, to get them set on their course, and now they're being tripped up, and Paul's saying, God is not in the business of starting you on a course and then tripping you up on the course. So the one that you're following, it's not the Lord. And then we get to verse 9, and it's a little bit strange. He breaks from uh, the running analogy to a baking analogy. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven, if you're not familiar, is a fermenting agent. It's used to make dough rise before you bake it. So you have to give it uh, time to work its way through the whole lump of dough so that it rises as it's supposed to. Uh, I think of this like almond extract. Um, some of you are bakers. You like almond extract. I'm sorry for you. I hate almond extract. And if you use a little bit in whatever you're baking, I will smell it and I will taste it and I will say thank you for Thank you, that was really nice of you. And then I will set it aside because a little bit is enough to ruin the whole cake. I'm, I'm sorry to the bakers out there. I don't mean to offend you. But the point is, it permeates everything. And Paul is saying sin works the same way. Sin is a type of leaven. A little bit will work its way through everything. So the Galatians have been hindered from obeying the truth because sin has gotten into the mix and it's enough to ruin their run. Paul then says he's confident, though, that the Galatians are going to come around. Uh, they're going to see things rightly, and that the one who is causing this trouble is going to bear the penalty. So the one who's tripped you is going to get penalized. That's appropriate in a race. The race judge is going to take care of them. Uh, in other words, spiritually speaking, they are going to receive God's judgment. And that may be uh, scary in some ways when we think about God's judgment, but I actually hope it's an encouragement to you. I hope it's an encouragement to you to think about how Jesus fought for you and that he also protects you. God's protecting his people in this situation. 
Um, that's why Paul's confident that they're going to see it his way and why he knows that the person is going to get penalized. Because if people are trying to trip up God's sheep, distract uh, God's people, harm them in some way, God's not going to let them get away with that. God fought for them, and he will protect them. So I hope that's actually an encouragement, even though this whole talk about penalization, uh, being penalized and, uh, and judgment could be um, a little uncomfortable or scary. Uh, verse 11, kind of interesting, feels like it comes out of nowhere. Uh, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Where did that get thrown in? We know that Paul was not preaching circumcision. He's been very clear about that. But he was being accused of preaching circumcision. Um, we read earlier in Galatians, in Galatians 2, that when Paul was with Titus, he did not have to get circumcised. But in Acts 16, uh, Timothy did get circumcised. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says he became, uh, he became as a Jew to win the Jews. So Paul wasn't anti-circumcision. His point, though, to the Galatians was circumcision is not how you please God. So they did not need to be a legal Jew in order to become a Christian. As we've told you over and over again through this series, uh, becoming a Christian is about faith, not the flesh. So Paul is saying the fact that he's being persecuted is clear evidence that he is not preaching circumcision. If he were preaching circumcision, then he and the Judaizers would have gotten along just fine. They would not have any reason uh, for trouble. So Paul's just saying, that's, that's nonsense. You, it, sh it should be obvious that, that that's nonsense. And then he says, um, but if, if that were so, the offense of the cross would be removed. So in other words, he's saying, if I were preaching the removal of the flesh... What I'd actually be doing is advocating for the removal of the gospel. To Paul, the offense of the gospel, uh, the offense of the cross is necessary. That's something to carry the image forward. That's something that can't be cut off. And then he kind of comes out and lets him have it. He, he gets right to the chase. Uh, uh, he says, I wish those who were causing you all this trouble would stop trying to neuter the gospel and just go ahead and neuter themselves. And he explains why in verse 13, why he's angry. He says, for you were called to freedom. Trying to submit again then to a law uh, does not make you free, it makes you a slave. These guys were trying to uh, enslave, uh, enslave the Galatians by uh, making a big deal out of a little bit of skin. Paul's saying, I wish they'd just uh, take their own advice and lop off the whole thing um, and stop bothering you about it because you're supposed to be free of that kind of thing. He then explains what their freedom is for. Don't use your freedom for the flesh. Okay, great. Uh, why? Because you were set free. You were set free from the law of the flesh. So don't use your freedom to go back to the flesh, but instead, through love, serve one another. That sounds really good. We like that idea. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. But if only it were so easy, right? The shocking thing here, actually, is why Paul wants them to do this. He tells them in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as your yourself. Now stop and think about that. Paul just said, we are free from the law. And now he's talking about fulfilling the law. 
Seems kind of strange. But just like Paul isn't anti-circumcision, he's also not anti-law. He tells Timothy that the law is good if it is used lawfully. What Paul is saying to the Galatians is, um, you so want to fulfill the law, well, you can't do it in your flesh. To fulfill the law is actually about your heart. Can you love your brother? Then in verse 15, he gives them a warning. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In other words, you reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh. If you love one another, you're going to reap rich fruits. But if you bite each other, you will reap the fruit of bitterness, envy, and strife. Okay, so some interesting things um, in this passage. What does it mean for us? What should our church take from this? How does it speak to us today? Well, the first point I laid out at the beginning, remember, we're talking about running. Uh, to run well, we need to be careful about what we take in. So in verse 7, Paul says, you have been tripped up from obeying the truth. Verse 9 tells us that this is the effect of leaven. Again, leaven has gotten in. And it's not good leaven, it's bad leaven. So the Galatians had been leavened in a way that was not helping them to run after Jesus, but was stopping them from running. It was hurting them. The Galatians were following the false doctrine of whoever was hindering them, and it was having a leavening effect in them. Leaven in the Bible is not a bad thing, okay? Leaven is kind of a neutral thing. There's good leaven and there's bad leaven. The leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus says, is bad. The leaven of the Judaizers here is bad. But Jesus also compares his kingdom to leaven. Again, the point is, whatever it gets into, it permeates. The kingdom works this way, and so does sin. So for us, we need to be aware of what's leavening us. Leaven, like I said, is used to make bread. So think about it like eating. What are you eating? What's fueling you? What are you letting into you? Because what you let into you is going to work its way out. What occupies your thoughts, your heart's affection, what we let into our belief system is going to work its way through us and it's going to come out in our words and our actions. So we want good leaven to fuel us. We want kingdom leaven. We don't want false doctrine and bad leaven. This is also why our theology is a big deal. Theology matters. Your beliefs matter. Your beliefs can either be shaped by God and his word or your beliefs can shape your view of God and his word. Something is going to shape you. Something is going to leaven us. And we must be aware of the leaven that surrounds us. Every billboard, social media ad, TV show, movie, song, everything has a message for you. And it's a message that can leaven you one way or another. I'll give you an example. It's a tough season for lots of people for lots of reasons. Um, in your mind, in your heart, is the world spinning out of control? A lot of people feel that way. Is it spinning out of control, or is, it, is God just getting it into the, the right position that he wants it? If God is good and a giver of good gifts, 
Why do we struggle so much? Why do we lament our days? Why do we complain as though God were doing something wrong to us? What's shaping our beliefs? Almost every night at the dinner table, one of our children tells us that what we're eating is not their favorite. And then we tell them, well, it's what God has given to us, and we are going to give thanks for it, and we are going to eat it. And then we tell them that they may not talk that way, because it's disrespectful to their mother who spent time preparing for them a good meal. They haven't gotten the lesson yet, but we're still working on it. But either way, the point is, your circumstances may not be your favorite. They may be really hard, actually. God sees the hard circumstances, but he also uh, wants you to trust him through them. God can be good to you through the hard circumstances. He actually wants you to be able to say thank you for them because God's not doing anything that's unfaithful to you. He's going to take care of you all the way. So good leaven is like carbo-loading for the race. Good leaven prepares you for the marathon. Bad leaven tries to stop you from running. Good leaven feeds you. Bad leaven demands something from you. So what are you feeding on? How are you preparing for the Christian race? The second thing we need to take from this text is to run well, we have to look for the hurdle. In verse 11, Paul says, if he were preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross would be removed. That word offense means stumbling block. So for racing purposes, think of it like a hurdle. Paul has said that uh, we don't want to get tripped up on the things that keep us from the truth. That's what he said in verse 7. But here he's saying that the truth itself is actually something to trip on. It's something to stumble over. And we actually have to be okay with that, church. We have to be okay with the stumbling block, with the hurdle of the cross. So just like we don't want uh, bad leaven, we want good leaven. We don't want bad stumbling blocks. We don't want uh, things to trip us up in the way. We actually just want the one hurdle that is designed to stumble us. We actually need to be offended by the cross. And, though it's challenging, we also need to offend with the cross. The cross is offensive, and it's supposed to be. I understand that we may not like offending people. I don't. But Paul had a big problem with the cross being thought of as palatable or non-offensive. To better understand this, we actually need some more context. In Galatians 3... Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 21. I want you to get why this is offensive. Okay? Uh, so he quotes from Deuteronomy 21. And he says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Maybe we're familiar with that. But we miss this sometimes because we think of the Bible as a whole, which it is, but we kind of forget the dates. Uh, Deuteronomy was written some 1,500 years before Galatians. And so for 1,500 years, the Jews had a view of what it means to be hung on a tree. It means you're cursed. So telling a Jew that he must consider Jesus to be the Messiah, that's telling a Jew to consider someone they believe God cursed to be the blessed one. It's an offensive idea. It's an abandonment of the law, or so they thought. The same is true of circumcision. Circumcision, it's not bad. 
there's a trend today that says it's wrong or it's bad for a parent to circumcise their son. That's not true. Uh, parents are free to circumcise their sons. Uh, they just shouldn't think that that's how they please God. But have you ever asked the question, what's circumcision really all about? Like, what's the point? Uh, have you ever asked, like, why would God require that very specific sign? It's kind of strange. But as the token Jew, I'm glad to be up here to address my Gentile congregation and explain it. Uh, circumcision was an unmistakable sign, as you can probably guess. Uh, it was an unmistakable sign that a man and his household belonged to God. It was a covenant sign that meant this person has been cut off from the rest of the world. A, a connection was severed. They died to a part. So you might ask, how does cutting a little bit of skin communicate that? Well, God cut them. He cut them physically to show them what he was doing spiritually. It was a sign that showed they were God's alone, and anyone who saw them naked, uh, anyone who saw what was most intimate to them, their most private parts, would know that they live differently down to what is most private. We still have signs for this. They just aren't in our flesh. They are spiritual signs. Peter and Paul say that baptism is a picture of death. It's a leaving off of the old life in order to pursue a new kind of life. So we still have these cutting signs. They just they work differently now. They're not in the flesh. So circumcision isn't a problem for Paul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you're not circumcised, you don't need to be. But if you are, don't try to remove the marks of circumcision. I don't know how anybody would do that. Uh, that seems kind of impossible. But nonetheless, um, circumcision was never to be about the flesh. It was a sign in the flesh, but it wasn't about the flesh. In Romans, we read that it's about our hearts. Our hearts are what truly need to be circumcised. Our hearts need to die to the things that capture them and try to rule them. Now, I spend time on this topic because just like saying to a Jew that they need to regard a man they believe cursed to be the blessed one, Paul is saying something similar here. He's saying, hey, Galatians, Judaizers, the mark you carry between your legs, which is according to the law, that mark doesn't mean you're pleasing God. The Judaizers and Jews would see the inclusion of uncircumcised Gentiles as a rejection of the law. It would be offensive to them. Hey, you believe this cursed guy is the blessed one. You believe that to follow him is actually to reject uh, what he's told us to do. You get why they'd be offended by that? The cross is offensive. Paul says it is an offense. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and to Gentiles. He says it's folly. It sounds stupid to them. Only the Spirit of God can make the cross make sense. Only the Spirit of God can convince the Jews that Jesus was cursed, that he was cursed for them. He took the curse of the law because they would not have been able to. Only the Spirit of God can convince Gentiles that the cross is actually God's wisdom. It's not folly. The cross should regularly be a thing that we stumble over. It should regularly make us think about how we're running, 
Are we running in a way uh, that's pleasing to Jesus, that's like how Jesus ran? Or are we running in a way to please ourselves with a little bit of Jesus thrown in? Jesus died. He went to the cross to pay for the way you spoke to that family member this week at Thanksgiving when you got short with them. The cross is supposed to offend our tongues. The cross was how God dealt with uh, your gossip or addictions or rage and bitterness. It's supposed to stumble you. It's supposed to cause you to rethink how you're running. The cross must be offensive to us. It should always offend our sin. And if we preach a cross or a gospel that isn't offensive, we are doing what Paul's talking about here. We're trying to preach a neutered gospel, a powerless gospel. Joel Osteen, he gets a lot of hate thrown at him, and for good reason. Um, and some of you may know this about his church, but he's got a mega church down in Houston, and in his church there are no crosses. Because by his own admission, he wants to focus on a positive message and not on sin and the cross. To attempt a crossless Christianity is for us to still be in our sins. The cross of Christ is a bloody place of sacrifice where God executed his wrath on sin. It's offensive to tell somebody that's where you have to go actually to be safe. If there's no sacrifice in your gospel, there is also no salvation in it. This is why Paul gets so angry in verse 12. Because insisting on the law, which here is being symbolized by circumcision, to insist on that is to empty the cross of its offense. And so Paul says, I wish those who are so worried about a little bit of skin would just go ahead and take a little more of their own. Let them just take the whole thing off while they're at it. Now Paul's not just saying that to be mean. We would probably think, like, sick burn. Good job, Paul. Uh, Paul is not trying to achieve a mic drop moment. Um, he's actually, I think, making an appeal to the law here. In Galatians 5.4, he said, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Okay? So in verse 4, he's saying, If you insist on circumcision, you are already severed from Christ. And what I think Paul is doing here is saying, Hey, Judaizers! You're so worried about Deuteronomy 21 and the guy who was hung on a tree that you've actually forgotten and broken Deuteronomy 23, which says, if a man's testicles are crushed or his male organ is cut off, he is not welcome in God's assembly. So he's saying, they've already been cut off. Let him just go ahead and lop the rest of it off and make it official. The cross is offensive. And Paul is offensive here. But he's not, being, uh, he's not offending just by being brash or ungodly or mean or something. Uh, he is, uh, he's offended the Judaizers' love for the law by showing them that trying to combine it, trying to combine the law with Christ is actually how you break the law. Christians today, we hate to offend people. We often try to avoid it at all costs which has caused the church to believe it can water down the gospel, that it can make friends with the ungodly without offense. Paul is telling us that's not possible. We have to be okay with the hurdle. If you've ever seen the movie Big Daddy, uh, the, the boy in the, the movie, he was throwing sticks in front of some people that were rollerblading by, and they kept tripping over them. 
I'm not telling you to do that, okay? But I am saying that Jesus and his cross should be a regular part of your speech, and it should be something that people trip on. We need to trip on it. We want others to trip on it. It's the only thing that we actually really need to get tripped up on. The cross is supposed to be offensive. If your words and your life preach Christ, it will offend people, and that's okay. It's supposed to. And Jesus tells us that if people get offended by you and they get mad at you, you know what you should do? You should actually go around the corner and just do a little dance. Throw yourself a little party. He says there's actually blessing for you in that. The third point we gather from this text is to run well, we need to watch out for the ditches. Specifically, we need to understand law and liberty. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. Okay, Paul's going to address both. We see that in verse 13, he says, you were called to freedom. Fantastic. Liberty. But then he says, through love, serve one another, which fulfills the law. Okay? So there's law and liberty. And Christians often make the mistake of trashing one and falling into the ditch of the other. So we uh, will trash the law and fall into a ditch uh, on the liberty side. Or vice versa, we'll trash liberty and fall into a law ditch. Um, it's not as common for us to fall into the, the, the law ditch to, to be anti-liberty and more pro-law, um, probably a, a generation past. Um, it's much more common for us to fall into the liberty ditch, to be very opposed to the law. Uh, we uh, try to be like spiritual libertarians uh, where we just say, oh, you know, uh, forget the law. That's stupid. We don't need to do that. Uh, we can just do whatever we want. We're set free. Well, remember, like I said earlier, Paul tells Timothy, the law is good. The law is good if we use it lawfully. Paul says elsewhere that the kind of person who thinks that way, that they can just, you know, forget the law, we just do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. We're set free. Paul says in Romans that that person's condemnation is just. So liberty is good. We want liberty. It's like the law, though. It's good if it's used for a good purpose. And Paul tells us here that there are bad ways for us to use our liberty. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, use it to love, which is to fulfill the law. So what we need to understand is that being set free, having liberty, does not mean that we are free from all law. It means we are free from being under the law. At one point, the law was the standard by which God would judge his people. So it was a question of how do you measure up? And that's a terrifying thought. Because if, if, if that's the case, if you have to measure up to the law, uh, it will only succeed in condemning you. If you try to measure me up to the 613 commandments of Moses, the verdict will come back guilty every time. And the sentence deserved will be death. So Paul's saying, that's the future of somebody who's under the law. You're bound to try to keep all of it, and it's never going to work. So what did Christ do? Christ set us free from the weight of the law, the crushing weight of the law that hung over us. That's what he set us free from. He did not do that by abolishing the law. He actually upheld the law. He did it perfectly. And now God says we're united to him. So we're measured in the law cannot crush us anymore. The law was uh, divided up into three parts, or three categories. Um, there's ceremonial law, 
moral law, and judicial law. Ceremonial law had to do with cleanness. How can you come before God? So it's a, it's a law that's about sacrifice. How can you be clean? Moral law was things like don't covet, honor your parents. So they weren't crimes, but they were sins if you didn't obey them. They were violations of God's holiness. And then judicial law dealt with how people related to one another, right? So, hey, you stole my ox. What does the law have to say about that? Oh, I borrowed your axe to chop some wood and it broke. What does the law say? Who's responsible? Okay, so that's the judicial law. And in all three types of law, uh, the, point is, the point is how we love the Lord and how we love one another. That's what God's after. God's teaching us how to love him, how to love each other. So think about this. In the gospel, we are told that Jesus took our uncleanness. He took our sin. He died with it. He was cursed. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The effect of what Jesus did is that everyone who believes in Christ is clean, perpetually clean. That means they are welcome with God. This fulfills the ceremonial law. We don't have to do sacrifices anymore. No cleanliness laws anymore. Food is clean and you can eat it. But so if you're trying to, to obey the moral law, let's say, uh, um, you know, you're trying really hard to be content in what God has given you. You're trying not to covet, trying to be thankful because God has provided what he has for you. And you want to be content in that. And then you see your neighbor coming down the street, driving this really cool new car because they had a stock or an NFT that just went crazy. And you're like, that's really good for you. you know. Or maybe uh, you see somebody who it seems like... Uh, they just have no problems. Everything just goes so right for them. Mm -hmm. It's real, real fun for them, right? Suddenly we become a lawbreaker again, right? Because we're bitter at our friend who has no problems or we're envious of the person who's driving around in the cool new car. Well, what would the law tell us to do? In the old system, it would say, well, now you have to go back to the ceremonial law and figure out which sacrifice to offer. What is necessary now for you to be clean? But in Christ, when you break God's commandments, what do you do? Okay, well, you go back to the ceremonial law, and what are we told there? We are told that Jesus fulfilled it, that he sacrificed himself once and for all so that you are perpetually clean. So, yeah, you go back to the ceremonial law, and you're reminded there that, yes, God made you clean already. And so what you can do then is you can actually go to God on your own. You don't have to do something now to get clean in order to go to God. You are clean, and so you go to God, who is your Father. You confess your sin. Tell him, Lord, here's what I've done, and it was wrong, and so now would you forgive me on the basis of what Jesus has already finished? Christian, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. We cannot do it anymore. Physical circumcision, physical sacrifices, they do not cleanse. Only Jesus cleanses. Only he can make you clean. Christ has brought you out from under the condemnation of the law by dying on the cross so that you can live the way he lived. The law cannot condemn you. That doesn't mean it can't teach you, though. The law can teach us how to run the race. 
Again, it's good if it's used rightly. It is a good guide. It is an impossible standard. So in order to run well, we need to mind the ditches. Watch out for the ditch that says all law and no liberty. Watch out for the ditch that says liberty and no law. They actually go together. Use your liberty to love, which is a true fulfilling of the law. And lastly, to run well, we must fight all the way to the finish line. In verse 13, Paul contrasts love and flesh. He says, don't use your freedom for the flesh, as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Again, that's the kind of verse that sounds really nice. That's probably the kind of verse you'd see in a southern restaurant up on the wall, right? Maybe in a cracker barrel. Through love serve one another. Don't hear me wrong. I appreciate cracker barrel. Um, But we make a mistake of thinking that the way to achieve this love is just to tell people to do it. Perhaps we should just go around singing, you know, the Beatles song, you know, all you need is love. Um, is that what we should do? Is that, is that how love actually gets achieved? No. No, what we need to do is actually fight all the way to the finish line. And the fight is between the flesh and love, which is another way of saying the fight is between the flesh and the spirit. In January, after our, uh, after our uh, Advent series is over, we're going to get back into Galatians. And in the next part of chapter 5, we are going to address the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is first, love. So if on our Christian run we are using our freedom for the flesh, that means we are not running according to the Spirit. You cannot obey the truth. You cannot serve one another in love if you're not doing so by the Spirit. Does that mean that atheists can't be loving people? Yes and no. No, by God's common grace, they can display some of the characteristics of love. But the Bible says that God is love. And if you don't know God, then how could you know love? To love is to give someone what is best for them, what will uh, eternally satisfy them. God gave that to us and himself. And he expects us to give that to others, which suggests that there are people then who don't have it. So we must fight. We must go to war against the works of the flesh that are within our own bodies. We must be able to recognize our own sin and seek to put it to death. We want our sin to stumble over the cross so that it can die there. And then we, like Jesus, can rise and continue to run. We need to fight the flesh within ourselves. We need to fight it within our community. We must address one another. If you see sin in me, if you see sin in somebody that's in your discipleship group, you need to be ready again to be offended by the cross, to offend people with the cross. If we can't do it within our community, we can't do it outside of our community. We talked a few moments ago about a neutered gospel. And I fear that this idea of love being the fulfilling of the law is part of how we've actually neutered the gospel in the church. Um, Because it just sounds, uh, maybe it sounds too easy, maybe it sounds a little too feminine, I'm not sure. Uh, Men in particular, though, will kick against this 
because we think uh, of love and perhaps we think of, uh, of a picture of a nurturing mom, you know, warm affection between mom and kid or something like that. And those are wonderful things, okay? But they are more feminine things. And men today have largely had enough of being told to get in touch with their feminine side. That's actually not what, what the church needs to hear. What we need to understand is that to love is to fight. To train up sons is to raise up godly warriors, and that is loving. To teach uh, young girls how they are supposed to be treated that is to fight off future bad guys. To dance with your wife is to shield her from lies. It is also to glorify her. That's why she spins and you just provide the opportunity. To confront someone in your discipleship group who is caught in sin is a fight. But it's an obedient fight. It is a loving fight. It is loving to try and set someone free from the thing that's tripped them up. Love is not sappy rom-coms where men really don't have much of a role except to screw things up. To love is to fight, and it is even to die. Jesus Christ died for his bride because he loved her. So whether you are a young man, an old man, a, young, uh, a married man, a single man, you are training to be like Christ, who is a warrior king, who is also the embodiment of love. Ladies, young, old, single, married, you're training to be like the church, a loving and nurturing body, an intelligent body that is strong and feminine and beautiful. We are to love the Lord and we are to love one another. That's how we fight, and we do that according to the ways that God has designed for us. Jesus Christ ran a race, and he made it to the finish line, which means he died he was cursed, according to Deuteronomy. He was hung on a cross, on a tree, because he was offensive to people. They didn't like him, and so they hung him on a tree. His righteousness was challenging and offensive, and he was killed for it. But, having finished the race to God, God awarded him with a prize. God raised him up from the dead and gave him rule over the entire world. Psalm 2 says that God would make the nations his inheritance, and he did. God raised Christ up to receive the prize. He has been crowned with victory, and he has become the ruler of the world. And Hebrews 12 tells us that we are supposed to run our race like him. We are supposed to run looking to him. He came... And he ran the race first. He showed us how to run. And so he is the one that we are supposed to watch. And so it says in Hebrews 12, Let us lay aside every weight and hindrance which clings so closely. Let us cast off the things that would trip us up. Let us get rid of the bad leaven. And run with endurance the race set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author of the race, the perfecter of the race who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Christ ran all the way to the cross. He endured it for the sake of joy. It says, despising the shame, he did not care what people thought of him. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
when you run the race of Christ and you come to the finish line, that is when you die, what is God going to give you? He's going to give you the same thing he gave to his son because you are his sons. He's going to raise you up. And Jesus says that he will invite us to sit with him on his throne. We are told that we are going to get to reign with him. If we are in Christ, everything that happened to him will happen to us. So trust the Lord who has gone already ahead of you. Trust the Lord who paved the way. Trust the Lord who is the way. He has cleansed you. He will strengthen you for the way. Run with endurance. Run together. Run hard after your Redeemer. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would apply it to us. Make us aware of what's leavening us. Help us to be free of it. Help us to feast on the things that are actually going to nourish us and spur us on in our pursuit of Jesus. Father, help us to be okay with carrying around an offense, the offense of the cross. Help us also to be wise in our use of law and liberty. We don't want to be a stuffy bunch. We don't want to be uh, spiritual libertarians. We want to follow the Lord. So please make us wise. Help us to fight all the way to the finish line. Help us to learn about Jesus who is the embodiment of love. Help us to love uh, one another the way he did. We ask this all in his name.